Sit back in your seats, get something to eat, and watch this movie. Don't let the kitty see it, because, well, let, let, we'll let you hear the, the, the um, video first. Thank you. Alright, you are listening to Left of the Projector. This week on the show, we are discussing the 2006 Guillermo del Toro movie, Pan's Labyrinth. And joining me, I have two-thirds of the Intervention podcast, Nick and Levi, and I have one of the collection of the Turn Leftist podcast. How's it going? With me, Mike. Thanks, you all, for joining. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. Good to be here. This is kind of a pick, I think, because of the historical nature of this movie, in addition to it being just a solid movie in itself. And so I think before we maybe jump into talking about the movie, I know that uh, Nick and Levi had some some content. And just to give you a context, the movie takes place in Spain in 1944, which is during World War II, and then also on the back of the Spanish uh, Civil War, which I don't know if I had the exact years. I thought it said 36 to 39, but it seems like the remnants kind of continue. Um, but I don't know if which one you wanted to maybe to jump in and talk about some of the history. I think it's just for me, it's important to remember one, as you mentioned, Evan, that this movie takes place five years after the official end of the civil war. So this is kind of like in the mop up stages for the fascists, right? So we're five years. It's kind of the last pockets of resistance being kind of hunted down. And the ideology of Franco fascism is really, you know, taking hold especially five years down the line, right? But, um, you know, you, you had a civil war here where 200,000 people, I think, 200,000 people plus died. Obviously, a civil war, a lot of horrible, you know, a lot of horrible tragedies that pitted, you know, family against family um, as these things kind of go. And, you know, I think it's really important that we keep in mind that the right, the authoritarians, which is, I think, something that we can, you know, how it gets framed and how it gets talked about, the authoritarians are fascists. The bad guys in this movie are explicit fascists. They're not some kind of nebulous authoritarians. This is their ideology, right? Um, and they were fighting against a popular front of leftists led by anarchists, communists, some progressive liberals as well. But it was a broad-based movement with a lot of geopolitics on both sides coming to bear, right, in terms of who was supporting or who was not intervening. So again, just keep in mind, like, who the good and the bad guys are from an ideology perspective as you're watching this movie, because I think it adds something to it. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Levi. I was going to say, you had some, uh, some, you sent me this article, which I'll link in the show notes, but maybe you can introduce it and talk about it. Yeah, just for the sake of what I'm about to say and to build off of what Nick was saying, the fascism in Spain went by many names. The the actual party that Franco was a part of was called the Phalangism. The it was called National Socialism. It was called Catholic Nationalism, Francoism, Fascism, and just the Nationalists. So we can use those terms interspersed, and we see those symbols throughout the movie as well. But just getting at what I wrote out, and that's looking at an article by Andrew Silverstein published July 18th, 2023 in Jewish Currents entitled Step by Step. So unlike Germany or Italy, Spain continued on after the Holocaust and World War II without facing any Nuremberg trial or truth commission. Instead, Franco ruled Spain for near 40 years before his death by natural causes in 1975. After his burial, the people of Spain pressured his appointed successor, King Juan Carlos I, to transition away from fascism perhaps with the Portuguese Carnation Revolution, which happened less than a year prior, on his mind, the king abided, 
and the royal parliamentary democracy currently governing Spain blossomed. A consensus emerged in Spanish society known as the Pacto del Olvido, or in English, Pact of Forgetting, also known as the Pact of Silence. In brief, the pact embodied the fear that dredging up and putting the actions of the French fascists on trial might cause a mass schism or even the resumption of a civil war. In 1977, parliamentary right and left, including the socialists, communists, and the center-right People's Party, came together to pass the immunity law, which freed all political prisoners held for crime. At the same time, the law codified the silence. It gave immunity to all Francoists and ordered who ordered disappearances, oversaw labor camps, or committed other crimes against humanity during Franco's regime. The law restricted the ability for victims and their families to petition for compensation or even information. If the disappeared failed to reappear, there was no recourse. No closure, just silence. The cities and streets named for the fascists, the monuments erected by Franco, the mass graves of tens of thousands of corpses, all victims of national Catholicism, remained untouched. The Republicans, among the 200,000 dead during the Civil War, remained unnamed. Fear of the Civil War colored this cautious approach. In 1981, members of the National Police stormed Congress in a failed coup attempt on behalf of fascism. The Catholic, National, <clears throat> the Catholic Nationalist far-right Box Party split from the center-right Pepe People's Party in 2013. After becoming the third largest party, Box, since spring 2023, runs in coalition with the Pepe and may yet be their governing partner in Parliament. In spite of this thriving right wing, there have been movements pushing Spain to come to grips with its own historical memory. In 2007, the people pushed the governing Socialist Party to pass the first historical memory law. For the first time, bodies could be exhumed and identified, streets and cities could be renamed, and monuments could be removed. In fall 2019, the Spanish government finally exhumed the remains of Franco from the colossal mausoleum in the Valley of the Fallen and laid him to rest next to his wife in Madrid. In October 2022, the socialist government strengthened the memory law by banning explicit symbols of fascism from public life while constructing a, generic, a genetic database to search for those who had been disappeared. To borrow a phrase, the crimes of Francoism weighed like a nightmare on the brains of the living. The left set to work connecting Franco to the actions of Nazism as a means to adapt the German understanding of national guilt. The right worked to rehabilitate Franco by repeating the myths of his regime, which they concocted after the war, that thousands, even millions, of Jewish refugees had escaped through Spain with Franco's assistance. None of that was true. Thus, after 2007, monuments to victims of the Holocaust are welcomed across the country because this ambiguity can be manipulated to fit the right's rehabilitation project, while explicit Republican political monuments inflame political sectarianism. To this day, memory, even the construction of or destruction of monuments, books, and films is an extremely partisan issue. So to all that, I have to say this. I think we were discussing this before is, how, I mean, this is purely speculation because I could find nothing about this, is how this movie might have been perceived or received as better in Spain. I mean, this is, we'd have to only speculate here, but it would seem like a pretty complicated thing even after these new you know, laws and, um, you know, actually bringing up these horrors within the Spanish, you know, regular people. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't have set off some sort of reaction. I mean, they're not even able to rename streets after Franco, and his body's only been exhumed from national celebration four years ago. I mean, this is incredibly fresh and dangerous territory in Spain, even today. And this came out in 2006, so this is well before, actually, this even happened. So 
I almost, it made about $12 million internationally in Spain, which isn't bad, but it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it was released in 2006. It was incredibly popular and it wasn't, in, it, you know, the very next year, the memory laws are passed. Right. So it seems like it was a moment of recollection, maybe before the right had figured out how it was going to politicize and backlash against this movement. You wonder even if any of those decisions by the parliament were at all influenced by this movie. I, I, I mean, probably not, but who knows? And I might have been trying to get at this a little bit in what I said off the top. I think it's hard to misconstrue who he's presenting as the bad guys, right? Like, you know who the bad guys are. I don't think there's any ambiguity about that. Where I think it fails politically is... And maybe, I mean, this, I don't think this was his intention, but I think if we looked at it as a political tool where it's lacking is showing what the political project of the good guys was explicitly. I mean, I know there's hints at it and allusions to it, but again, I think to the point that Levi is making, it always seems that like things get just pulled to the right, you know, the right cries foul and you can't go as far as you'd like to on the left because of the reaction, right? And some accommodationism at some level. And I think that gets into del toro's politics that we've gleaned a little bit i think in doing some research on this as well into how he would attack this and how he would view this situation and how he views structure and political systems broadly and but i think that's part of it too also the fact that he's uh not spanish he's mexican i mean he touches in a lot i mean he has movies on like the pinocchio movie is you know italian fascism so he really strikes this like fascist versus like you know as the evil in a lot of his movies so i think it's just kind of his it's his thing i guess yeah and that interview that i sent to you guys it was only like a minute long clip he doesn't even describe himself as and this could have been cut out of the interview but he describes describes himself as anti-structuralist being anti-structure which again just i think immediately our minds would go to oh well he's an anarchist you know so and i do want to talk about this but like if the shoe were on the other foot I wonder how he would perceive, you know, a situation like this. Like if the good guys actually won and were the ones responsible for distributing the bread, right? And then hunting down the, the fascist remnants, how would how would Del Toro view that? I, I don't know. Yeah. It is funny that he makes them so brutal. And the way he portrays the, the fascists here, it's very much in the way that communists are always portrayed. They are the bad guys in any kind of Western movie. Uniforms and very rigid social structure without explanations behind that or why it would be necessary. I think that's kind of what you're getting at, Nick, where they don't really explain the differences in the ideology behind the two and why they are at odds. Um, but he does do a good job of making the fascists the absolute most brutal people towards innocent people who absolutely mm -hmm. just mean well. And then showing the gorillas in the woods, even if they are dirty and getting limbs amputated and just really just in not glorious conditions at all, um, you still will, will not ever empathize with these fascists, even for all their snappy uniforms and how nice and tidy they are with their, all their, their order and, and their plenty of, uh, I mean, everyone hates the idea of bread lines, right? Like that's usually the thing that's used to demonize communists. And then the fascists have little bread lines, even in this movie, and then like their remote section of the country. But then again, he, he does a good job of making the, hip, the hypocrisy there very blatant because you see that they still have plenty. They're having like a feast on the same day that they're unveiling the, the ration cards for everyone else. So it's like, they're definitely the bad guys. Not only that, but in that scene, like explicitly the soldier who's announcing 
the ration cards and the loaf of bread holding it up. He's saying like, oh, the 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 gorillas say there's no bread in Spain. And I, I think it's a pretty good call out there. I think it's actually worth I think it's actually worth reading exactly what he says here. So he says, because it's very ripe with religious language that's throughout this movie. This is our daily bread in Franco's Spain, which we keep sage in this mill. The Reds lie when they say there's hunger in Spain, because in a united Spain, there's not a single home without a warm fire or without bread. The daily bread. Right? Yeah. That is another thing, too, that Del Toro's movies do often have that religious, like, bent to, bend to them. Uh, I can think of a couple, like Pinocchio specifically is, you know, one of the main aspects of it is a church. So I think that that language is clearly intentional to describe it as this, like, they are almost God providing for the people yeah mike i think it's just a really quick thing that he does to where he cuts away from the scene where the guy starts saying it and i don't know he comes off at first like he just is saying it because he really believes it. he's just saying it to this crowd of people and he's like man i'm really into this project and we're really giving bread and, and all this stuff that these people need to them and then they cut away to a different scene to cut back and he's just repeating it like rote memory it's like oh you're just a total npc it's like that was a really good cut back i like that I think it was written on the loaves of bread itself, on the little paper. Oh, man. So he was reading it from the bread. That would be pretty... So they can take it with them and they can still, you know, show their... Hammer it in. Right. It's a piece of... Food is a piece of propaganda. I mean, food is used as a symbol in this of, I don't know, obedience and resistance. And there's a lot of really great dichotomies that are played with. That is the very next scene is when uh, Ophelia disobediently takes the food and almost gets almost gets got by the thin man uh, i mean i think that the opening of this movie where you have kind of this fairy tale and then immediately you have the mother and the ophelia in this you know car bumping through going to this mill and like you do see this dichotomy of the fantasy world where everything is great and then you have this shitty ass little mill that they're going to have to live in because they can't I guess it's not safe in the cities right now presumably. Well, I thought that and this gets into another theme I guess we could talk about here with how it relates to nationalism and just reactionary politics, but I thought it was like a really patriarchal thing, right? Because they make it a point to say that the captain is basically forcing Ophelia and her mother to go out there because the son needs to be born. And he's dead set that it's going to be a son, even though he doesn't know it yet. But he's got like this ardent belief that it will be a boy. But like the mo the mom's not feeling well and he's kind of forcing her to take this trip so that the son can be born in the presence of the father, you know? Right. So, and uh, to your point, it could be true that maybe it wasn't safe, but that seemed to be like the driving motivation for why they were on this trip, that he had to be there. Yeah, like a symbol, it was like a symbolism too of the, the people in this town to see his son born, like the next generation heir, heir fascist. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how we want to go through the plot, but the relationship of father and son or father and child is really interesting in this. And that his relationship with his father appears to be, at the very least, extremely strained. Because his father is this actual general and recognized as a great man. And when the other captain is telling him the story of his father dying and breaking his clock, yeah, he denies that his father even ever had one, even as the watch is sitting in his pocket. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like he 
presumably given his age, I would assume his father fought in World War One. But you know, there's no actually, I don't know. For, forget that. Forget that from the right. But but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I assumed it was some imperialist war, right? Yeah. Like some colonial imperialist war that he died in. Yeah, he said he died in Morocco. Oh, that's right. right yeah. Morocco. Okay. So, but I think just because we're talking about the watch, and this is something that I noted in that opening scene. And sorry if I'm skipping over when she finds the fairy no, and all no, that, that's fine. but just because we're talking about the captain, you know, he he's staring at his watch, and then he notes explicitly 15 minutes late. Right. Mm -hmm. And there is this obsession with time throughout this whole thing. And I guess at like a really surface level, I mean, it's it's because this guy is obsessed with like efficiency and order. Right. And all I could think about as he's doing this and again, there's probably deeper meaning. But, you know, Mussolini made the trains run on time. Right. Like Franco had things ordered and set. So I just thought like that this obsession with time and efficiency was meant to be painted as a very negative characteristic of the captain and as such fascism as well that's exactly the same thing i noted too yeah there's just a like a soulless obsession with efficiency and even when efficiencies are shown to be or inefficiencies are shown to be present he just it, it drives him mad like I, I don't want to jump too far ahead but there's a really great example of that later in the movie oh the time situation or the this idea of obedience versus hope. Yeah. Well, no, I think it's fine that you skipped over some of the, like the opening. We don't have to go clock through, you know, each scene here, but I think the opening bit of the movie, once they arrive at the mill and the captain has his clock and he's, you know, introducing his now wife. I think you mentioned Levi, like the relationship between him and his father. I think the relationship between Ophelia's mother, uh, Carmen and, you know, both Ophelia and then up towards Vidal, the captain, is, again, in this, like, rigid structure, the same way that the time is this rigid structure. It's you have to obey the person who's ahead of you that has power over you. I mean, the very first interaction between Ophelia and Vidal is him correcting her on what hand to shake. Yes, because she's holding her fairy tale books, like, in the one hand, she sticks out the wrong hand. And it's not like the time doesn't play a factor in the fairy tale world too like Viva has an hourglass that she has to make it back before the end of when she's in the, the thin man thin man's lair but she's able to avoid it like she doesn't make it back the door closes she draws another one so the spiritual slash left wing slash creative non-rigid aspect of humanity is always able to skirt the rules and sort of realize that they are bullshit to begin with that they're just made up and you can just get around them and then the unthinking uncreative mind like when the doctor says, like, you're the type that can just obey orders without questioning. It's like, that's a certain type of person. It's like, that's the type of person that leans toward fascism, being a cop, being a nice agent, those kind of things. Yeah. No, but I love that. When she drew another door, I wrote, chose another path, right? Because, like, the pale man has no creativity, can't reflect on past mistakes made or lessons learned or anything like that you can choose to get creative or you know and if you've made a mistake in your past you can choose to be different do a different thing yeah that's com I completely agree and just to draw the comparison even more direct the pale man is Vidal. he's the man sitting at the head of the yep. table and the opulent food and everything there and you know he's the guy that is the fascist embodiment the monster he is the monster and just to go back to the scene that Mike was talking about, I have the whole thing written out here. So it says, Vidal, and this is right after the doctor has killed the stuttering uh, rebel. Why did you do it? 
Doctor, it was the only thing I could do. Vidal, no, you could have obeyed me. Doctor, I could have, but I did not. From somewhere in the house, someone cries out. They hear a commotion among the servants. The doctor stands up and collects his bag. Vidal, but it would have been better for you. Vidal grips his arm, stopping him. Vidal, I don't understand. Why didn't you obey me? A long beat. The doctor knows that his response will seal his fate. Doctor, to obey without thinking, just like that. Well, that's something only people like you can do, Captain. Vidal takes out his gun and shoots the doctor. He drops to the ground. Vidal stands over him and finishes him off. A stunned Garces looks on, and that's his first lieutenant. It begins to rain as Jacinta and Koshinta arrive. Vidal, an urgent murmur. Garces, had the troop paramedic come to my wife's room right away. So I just think it's important to draw in there that Vidal actually kills the doctor as his wife is in labor. I mean, he's also acting out of a emotional thing that's not exactly rigid and logical. There's no reason he should kill the only man who's potentially capable of saving his wife and his son. So there's something actually broken about Vidal as well. He's not completely mechanical. He wants to be. That's the perfect fastest response, though. Like, someone calls you out on your character, your character flaw, and your voluntarily chosen belief system that you could abandon at any time. And rather than admit that they are right, you kill them. Like, you respond with violence, even if it is not in your best interest, your personal self-interest to do so. Like... It's the perfect fascist response to that. Yeah. I mean, the I feel like there's lots of instances. That, I feel like that's the first instance really in the movie where Vidal sort of like breaks his character. But it also, I think it's within his own actual character, like the, the kind of person he is to act impulsively, even though all the things from now are kind of strategic. He's like, when we're going to send, you know, he, he like they show him in the very first early on in the movie when he goes into the woods because they I think they see like the smoke from one of the fires and they're going out to inspect the the what it is and he seems like very competent and understands how to do things and how to you know they how long they had been there by touching how hot the fire was how many people there were knowing they're still there but at the same time he is foolish in that he doesn't actually care about other people he doesn't care about his wife he only cares about the son but to your point Evan in that scene where he chases after them in the woods he knows they're nearby and then stands out in the open and like screams out to them. Basically, he's taunting them, you know, which is like a cool masculine macho thing to do. But he's basically saying like, I hope you don't have a rifle. Like, please pick me off. I'm the captain standing right here. Like, he might as well wave himself, wave his arms around and put a target Cockiness. on himself. But I know. To talk about his great competence too, I noted that when he was at the train, there's the scene where he's talking to the fireman. And Vidal's, you know, observing and trying to figure out exactly what happened there the same way that he does at the campfire. And it's Vidal says, what did they steal from inside the freight cars? Fireman, nothing. They didn't open a single one. Vidal, what the hell are you talking about? Fireman, this whole mess. And they didn't open any of the cars. They didn't take anything. Vidal, nothing? Are you sure? Nothing. Who the hell knows what they wanted other than to make us waste our time? And just as Vidal's realized he's been tricked, the sound of distant gunfire reaches his ears. So he's just unable to conceive of the train being a trick because he just believes that they are vicious, that they they are the monsters. They're there to steal and stupid. And he, believe, he doesn't believe that they have the competence to pull off any kind of anything that could defeat, you know, the strong fascists. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting to go back to the dinner party because I think that's where we get the closest thing to actually a pronouncement on what fascism is yes. to Vidal and in this movie. So again, to read from the script, it's when they're sitting down at the dinner and the mayor says, 
We'll help you in any way we can, Captain. We know you're not here by choice. Fidel pauses and locks eyes with him. Fidel, you're wrong about that. The guests grow silent. I choose to be here because I want my son to be born in a clean, new Spain. Because these people have the idea that we're all alike. But there's a big difference. The war's over, and we won. And if we need to kill each of these to agree on it, then we'll kill them all. And that's that. He raises his glass and toasts. We're all here by choice. All respond. By choice. It might have been the first F-bomb that we got from Levi on any of yeah. our podcasts. <laughs> Just, I, sorry. I hesitated there for a second. <laughs> I know but... you did, so I had to call you out. But no, I mean, I, I'm glad you returned to that dinner party because, you know, since we already brought up the pale man, um, and obviously that, that setting the table parallels that dinner party, right? And we said that the pale man is Vidal, and I agree with that, but I think the pale man is beyond Vidal. Just look at who was at that table. And everybody at that table is embodied in the pale man, right? We have the bourgeoisie, the accommodationists, we have the Catholic Church, right? So you have the pale man as, yes, personified as in a person, Vidal, who is the face of fascism in this movie, but also wrapped into it is all of the class elements that make up this fascist movement in Spain as well, right? You've got the opulence of the, sorry, but you've got the opulence of the bourgeoisie, Right. And then you've got the Catholic Church who supported the Franco movement. Right. And like you can see it very clearly on the walls. You've got the empty shoes of dead children. You've got the imagery, the mosaics, the paintings on the kind of ceiling arches of the pale man butchering, preying upon children. So that's the critique of the church in there as well. And you have all this opulence and this guy has all the control of it and he's not using it all. But... And just to layer on a sort of dichotomy that Del Toro, Del Toro seems to be dealing with, those pillars that hold up that wall, while they're very Catholic in their imagery, are also carved with Celtic images. And the, the idea of the Celtic, which is I'm only calling it Celtic because that's what it calls it in the script, the idea of the Celtic being somehow other than Catholic, yet has a power that's old and ancient and fading, but is somehow just as real or more real than the representation of the church. I mean... He's doing something there, and I, I don't know that I quite understand what it is. I wanted to touch on a bit ago, going back to the time thing, um, the fawn. Um, I, I'm not sure if you guys realize, it took me a while. I had to watch some like footage after the fact that the same actor who is inside the costume for the Pale Man is also inside the fawn costume. The guy is great. He's just like, that's what he does. He's like a, a body like suit actor of some kind. Um, but the fawn is also driven by that time frame of like the moon. And like he starts rushing Ophelia, and it's like not entirely clear why. I'm I'm not sure. I can't remember if he ever makes it clear like why the moon is so important. If I'm just forgetting something at the end, but it's like the things that they are driven by time wise are still just like these natural spiritual things, as opposed to like the false construct of like the clock that we just made and said is like the real time. So I think that's another. They don't really because then at the towards the end of the film they kind of when she won't she doesn't complete like the final task they kind of just go past it and say okay well now you have another chance so they kind of go over it so i think that to me that would symbolize if i don't know which one of you said that the fantasy is kind of like the artistic side where people do have a kind of a choice of their path the fawn kind of says like well there is another way forward um too and so yeah and i, I think one of the things i think i mentioned at the very beginning is like the the, the different tasks that ophelia completes the second one being the food, I think, is like the the middle one. 
But I want to also mention the one before, which I took as like, she has to put those stones into the frog's mouth under the tree. And I think that she has to get a key from within there to use later. And it's also the same peril as the key that the, you know, to the storeroom that the, you know, the, the rebels or whatever you want to call them, the communists, the, the, the popular front needs to survive. So it's kind of like you have to kill one thing to enable another survival. Yeah, just to, to linger on that frog for a second, that CGI was so bad. It was so terribly done. That was the only time where I had to stop to think like, oh my God, this movie was made in 2006. It looked like some shit from the never ending story. <laughs> yeah, when it like, when it like pops. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. yeah when it... And that tongue, it was like so fake. I was tongue talking was about this part. with uh, the guy that we watched it with, Evan, does um, computer aid design. And he said, yeah, 2006, they hadn't quite figured out that you're supposed to make the actors interact with something physical and then layer on top of it. That was kind of a later innovation. And it's very clear that's why we're so repulsed by it, because it's so poorly yeah. done. He also made another number of notes on the poor CGI throughout the movie. But I think overall, even 2006, it's pretty good. And I think a lot of that's because a lot of the effects are practical. It's a very dark that, movie. That, that actor, too. I mean, the, the, the yeah. body, the body motions of even the fawn and obviously the pale man were, you know, obviously that was captured by that guy, which was awesome. Yeah, there's a couple of really bad green screen scenes as well, but we don't need to linger on that. The the other thing, too, I want to the other the couple other scenes I want to talk talk about, I think also maybe can we talk about together because they encapsulate Vidal's character and kind of how they treated the potential in quotation marks, you know. Um, rebels or the other people who aren't part of the party. And that's the scene where they find a, a boy and his father who claim they were like hunting rabbits. And I feel like it's also a good parallel to the scene later where you mentioned Levi with the stuttering um, individual who he's torturing too, is that he has no, he, like in the first scene, he has no patience whatsoever. He's just willing to just take the bottle and just in probably one of the most brutal scenes in the movie to smash the the son's face and then shoots the father. But then later when he's actually looking for information, he's much more patient in, in his kind of methodical, you know, uh, psychopathic behavior. I don't know what, what you all thought of either of those. And I guess there's a final scene later when they when he captures uh, Mercedes and is planning to torture her, but then doesn't get the chance. Yeah, I mean, my interpretation of the scene with the farmer was just that it was really setting the stage for what this guy's capacity to mm -hmm. do was just to be so, I mean, I, I don't know how much deeper it was other than that, like, innocent, because it was proven out that they were just innocent rabbit hunters, right? Because they found the rabbit in the backpack and he was just like, he was just like, take these to the kitchen and cook them, right? So to me, I just read that and maybe I missed something deeper. I just read that as like, okay, this is Del Toro letting me know that this guy is unequivocally undoubtedly an evil bastard and there's no ambiguity about it the only part yeah it was it was purely at least what i understand it as is plot development i mean it was utterly shocking i mean it's gratuitous it's ridiculous it's disgusting and it doesn't really fit his character like you're saying he thinks that they're the communists the rebels the guerrillas yet he's not interested in keeping one of them alive to interrogate them it just it doesn't make any sense you have to just accept that yeah, you know, he's telling a story and there's a reason this violence is here and it's not doesn't make that much sense if you put it under a microscope. It also just differed because sorry, real quick, guys, it also just differed because every time 
every every other time in the movie before they got into a particularly gruesome scene, it would kind of cut. Like before the doctor cuts the guy's leg off, before he hits him with the second hit with the hammer, it kind of cuts out. They show you every bash that drives this poor kid's nose into his face. So I think it's just, just you know, to bolster our point that it's just showing you who this guy is and he's bad. <laughs> it is a particularly brutal scene and there are a lot of quick hits like this is either right before or right after, I can't remember, the dinner scene. And I almost forgot about, like, just how fucking misogynistic he is when Ophelia, or not Ophelia, um, Ophelia's Carbon. mom, I can't remember her name, is Carbon. telling the story. Thank you. She's telling the story of how they met. It's like a nice story. And he's just like, oh, you'll have to forgive my wife. She tells these stupid-ass stories, and she thinks my, people might actually be interested in hearing him. It's like, dude, that's a, that's a first of all, it's a nice story. And then they immediately just go on to tell fucking war stories that are also just as sentimental, if not more so. Just like, oh, you guys are just dicks. But, like... Yeah, it is definitely just character development, like, back to back to back. And that just showed, like, I guess how Carmen's like a working class woman, right? And she kind of got sucked into this fascist reality through, you know, a tragedy in her life where her husband died, just kind of a set of circumstances, right? But she never fits in with the actual rulers of the capitalist party right because it's not just vidal that criticizes her and says oh she does not handle herself the ladies the wives of the other captains are laughing at her and scoffing at her and being like this person does not belong here right so she's very i mean i you know carmen mary's a fascist but i didn't find myself like being angry with her or anything like this she was a, still a very sympathetic figure i thought throughout the entire movie yeah she marries the wolf so she can protect herself I think is why we're meant to feel for her. Right. But just to add some complication to that, the doctor is also there with his wife. And we know that the doctor is sympathetic with the Reds. So I think even Del Toro is trying to say that within this facade of unification, you know, the priest is a monster. The mayor is a monster. But the doctor is just putting on an act. He says the things, but we know he doesn't actually mean them. And then you have the actual spy within the, you know, the group, which is Mercedes, whose brother is like the leader of this, you know, group. And it, 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 I mean, it also just shows like the cracks in the facade that these fascists believe that they had this, like, everything was perfect. Nothing could be tampered with. He had the, like, I feel like the key that he holds, like for the storeroom, that's kind of part of that frog scene, the kind of the parallel. I feel like it's almost like this, uh, like a, like almost like a metaphor that's not really that I'm kind of putting meaning into it in the sense that he believes like this storm is like infallible in that no one can break in. He has the only key, but it's easily broken into and stolen from. So these fascists don't have the same uh, level of control that they believe they do generally. Yeah. And, the, 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 and I don't know which one of you mentioned that Ophelia is from like a working class family. I think they said that the father who had died was a tailor and the captain would bring his suits or like get his suits made from her father and that's how they met and they never say how she he dies and i had this like weird suspicion like there was some like shady business along with the captain but they don't ever say this i'm like he probably like, killed her so that he could have because he like was attracted to her he got that impression too but they don't say anything like it but yeah, yeah. you get that kind of impression well Ophelia says that her father died in the war right which presumably was on the wrong side of the of the war i don't know and like, he was making the suits for the fascists that was his job that's why she meets him is because he's a customer at the at the tailor getting his suit fitted. Right. So it's it's just very interesting where the father stands, and I think it's meant to be left ambiguous because they don't spend any time describing yeah, I mean, it. You could certainly 
see him as maybe somebody that was just doing his job. You could see him as maybe somebody that was like maybe a, a net with national sympathies. You could also see it as somebody that was maybe like an informant, yeah. you know, working, working for the other side, you know, you, you, so you don't know. He, here's one thing that I noticed. So sorry. My once, what was say what guy? No, no, I have a whole okay, stupid well, thing. This might be dumb too. <laughs> the one thing that I, I noted like multiple times and like, I, I felt like it seems silly to note it down, but almost every time that Vidal had the captain was in any scene, the only thing that I could hear was his, like the, the crackling of his gloves. I don't know if anyone else noticed this, like throughout it, it felt so intentional and so creepy, especially at the very first scene you meet him, he's shaking hands and he has like that, the leather gloves. I don't know. It just, it gave me this vibe of just creepy layer to the movie. Yeah. I definitely noticed that because he would take off his glove whenever he was actually interacting with the world. Otherwise his glove would stay on. And the only reason I noticed it is because he took off the right glove to check the fire and you could see his wedding band. And I told my wife at the time, like, oh, look, his wedding band's on the wrong hand. And she said, nah, there's places that do it otherwise. But I, it was very clear, it was very front and center that his wedding band was shown on his yeah. right hand. What do you, what do you have, Mike? Oh, just like, if Guillermo del Toro was like a dumber director, we would already have like a Pan's Labyrinth 2, the prequel, where it talks about like Captain Vidal and how he purposely conscripted the tailor into service to send him away to get killed so that he could have his wife because it would fit in perfectly with the whole lore of this movie and the vibe of it to begin with um but that's a good point about the leather i mean i got so taken up with the thinking about the leather like i hadn't thought about it until you said it but now that you did i'm like that's all i can think about is the, the sound of the gloves and it kind of reminds me of um who's the creepy german guy in raiders of the lost ark with the little glasses like didn't he also yeah. do like the creepy leather squeak when he was like yeah it was his, just like... a fascist thing that i couldn't place but it yeah, was man. just like this guy's a fascist and i don't know why but just this seems like a uh fascist proclivity well, or something uniform too it's very like spotless can... and like you know it's yeah it, it's the cleanliness idea right like this just prim proper imagery when they're just fucking butchers isn't uh dr strangelove famously also has tight-fitted leather gloves that clearly just this this image that they're going for well that's the thing too that also made ophelia's like getting her dress all dirty like this is like the opposite of because it's happening at the same time as the dinner and they're having this like beautiful dinner they're all dressed you know in their uniforms and she comes back like in her destroyed sodded dress and is you know the the mother is like super angry at her but i feel like she 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 seemed afraid for her own life very vaguely like she clearly i feel like did this again like to protect her daughter and her future second child but against her own will it seemed like she does a lot of things throughout these trials that she's put up to that scare her that put her through pain right and there's that parable at the beginning when you're they're kind of setting the stage and they talk about like the rose of immortality or something like that that's at the center but it's surrounded by poisonous thorns and the narrator makes the comment and i'm kind of paraphrasing here that nobody's focused on essentially the prize everybody's too focused on the pain but i think ultimately like kind of what her journey shows and what that parable is saying and what the popular front struggle is saying is that to get to some kind of goodness on the end there is going to require sacrifice and pain and you have to be willing to kind of embrace that and i think ophelia does because she has i mean although it's fantastical she still does have like a better vision for the future as do the anti-fascists yeah i thought oh go ahead yeah and 
And in terms of that vision, the doctor sort of is a stand-in for somebody that's able to go from one end to the other. We meet him where he's sort of in the middle, where he's not entirely certain on what his fate is going to be. And to go back to that scene where he is just finished amputating Frenchie's leg, and it's Pedro and the doctor talking, and it's Pedro. We'll soon have reinforcements from Jaca, 50 men or more. Then we'll head to head. We'll go head to head with Vidal, doctor. And then what? You kill him? They'll send another just like him. And another. Later at the riverbed, the doctor washes his bloody hands and his surgical instruments in the stream and runs through the mountains. Doctor, you're screwed. No guns. No roof over your heads. You need food. Medicine. You should take care of Mercedes. If you really loved her, you would cross the border with her. This is a lost cause. Pedro, I'm staying here, doctor. There's no choice. He moves away towards Mercedes, who awaits him nearby. She hands him a key of the warehouse. Mercedes, here's the key. But you can't come down now. It's exactly what he wants. He kisses her on the cheek. Leave it to me. Mercedes, I'm a coward. No, you're not. Yes, I am. A coward for living next to that son of a bitch. Making his bed. Feeding him. What if the doctor's right? We can't win. Pedro looks at Mercedes. Hugs her fiercely. Well, at least we'll make things harder for the bastard. So they understand that they're going to lose. I mean, they've already lost at this point in the war. We understand that they've lost because this is based on a historical reality. Yet they're still the heroes of this movie on some level. Yeah. If we're agreeing that the fascists are the villains. No, I think we are. <laughs> I was really curious, like, what do you guys think this movie says about the role of, I guess, what we would consider the liberals, like the Doctor, uh, Mercedes, uh, even Carmen, versus the militants? Because you see the people who are living in the woods, and I guess I would consider them the real combatants. I would call them the tankies in the situation. I don't know. Where you would say the people who were still living within the fascist comforts um, and the you know the order and civilization that provides, um, you could definitely make the case that what the rebels are doing would not be possible without the information that the liberals are giving them. Even though they are very much on the same team. I'm just trying to make the distinction. Like, how do you make the distinction between the people who are in the comfortable position as the people who are roughing it out in the woods um, ideologically? It's like, you could definitely say that I can imagine those people in the woods being like, yo, why aren't you guys out here in the woods with us? Like, this sucks. Like, get out here with us and help us fight, and we can actually win this thing. Um, but that's not how organization in the real world works. That's how it would be if these were online people. You know what I mean? If these were people who were only interested in infighting as opposed to actually working together for, for a common goal. I think it's actually to their credit that the people who are really doing the tough shit and getting their legs cut off again um, are not fighting with the people who are living within the nice, comfortable farmhouse giving them the information they need. I mean, Mercedes and the doctor both feel a tremendous amount of guilt living in their comfort. I mean, Mercedes, even in what I just read, calls herself a coward. I mean, the doctor, on some level, understands that he's a coward, and that's why he chooses to stand up for himself later. So it's it's not an easy decision I mean, for I them. I feel like the actions that they both take, I guess Mercedes doesn't end up dying, she ends up surviving, but they, they come to terms with it by doing the most they can the best they can. The best the doctor can do in that situation is to put this guy out of his misery so he doesn't have to suffer anymore, right? So I think that they come to grips with it and have to do the do as most they can. I mean, Mercedes is also putting herself, even though she's living in comfort, she's also in danger of death at any time, maybe not the same level of the others. So I, I guess you could put them in that kind of like sock dem category. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think, I mean, to use, I think, kind of the maybe metaphor that you're placing on all these people, Mike. I mean, I think one thing it shows is that when shit hits the fan, material conditions are going to push people one way or the other. 
you know, and you're going to have people from a broad spectrum, maybe people that aren't ideologically fully committed to, you know, a certain tendency or whatever, but like they're going to get pushed into what may be the side of good or, you know, ultimately choose to continue to live in comfort if they have that kind of accorded to them within this kind of system, you know, but I think that's reflected in the historical, I mean, we're talking about a microcosm of a situation that was kind of the situation across the entire country, right? Like we keep referencing, this was a popular front. This was communist anarchists, progressive liberals, et cetera, et cetera, all fighting against fascism. And that led to its own set of complications within the movement broadly, but like they could at least decide, Hey, where, when it really matters, we'll fight, we'll fight the fascists, right? Because our broad goals are still aligned. But I think some people just need to realize that if you really actually care about these things and your home being not exclusionary, not fascist, um, you're going to have to make some concessions sometimes and actually, you know, maybe sacrifice a little bit. Yeah, to your point, we pretty much know exactly what Fidel's motivating ideology is. The new Spain that's clean of any inconsistencies. Complete order. We don't really have an idea or anybody pronouncing what the new Spain is going to look like for the guerrillas, for anybody on the anti-fascist league. Well, and that was kind of my point off the top, where I think as a political tool, it kind of fails with that because we just have, again, this nebulous idea of like, oh, these are the good guys. They're fighting for the people. But what does that actually mean? You know, like, what is that ideology? And I don't think we get that fleshed out. And again, I think he did a really good job making the fascists look like the monsters that they are. But I wish there was a little bit more on that end for my own political project ideas, you know. And so this is where I think the criticism that I have with the film in terms of a political project or even as a story comes in. It's easy to hate monsters. Monsters are evil. They have no redeeming qualities. The thing is, these fascists were human. They existed. They weren't monsters. They weren't inhuman. They were people. They had their own material conditions. They had their own ideology. They had their own thoughts and their reasons for taking the actions they did. So it's really easy to just say, those fascists were monsters. That's why there's a problem, because there's monsters in charge. But the real problem is that they were human beings. And that is not addressed in this movie. Using in a lot of his movies, like the idea of uh, symbols and other creatures and ways to symbolize them, you kind of de dehumanize them, but like in the opposite direction. Is that's not really it the mystifies. Right. Mystifies them. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And it, it just it it almost takes away their like the thing that actually makes them the humans who actually committed these atrocities like oh well this guy with like weird eyeball hands like did all the mean stuff but like actually it was you know the nazis and the fascists of spain and italy and japan that did all the actual you know they did all the all the fascisms well and i mean to the point that levi's making is that I mean, if we want to even take like a broader thing and tie in some themes that we've talked about before, and I think you're making this point as well, Evan, but we almost have like a great man theory in Vidal a little bit, right? Because all of everything is embodied, whether it's in Vidal or the pale man or anything like that, right? But it's just this one guy who, and I know he talks about what his movement represents, but all of your ire can really be focused in upon this guy and his nameless, faceless henchman a little bit to some extent, right? But we're not talking about, I mean, again, whether you like it or not, it was a mat, it was its own mass movement at some level. I guess I think it's somewhat ironic that they had the Catholics on their side. The Catholics are the ones who like provably, objectively, systematically abuse and murder children. And then like, 
their only retort is to be like, "Oh, it must be the Jews. M- must have been the like, must have been the cabal." It's like you motherfuckers. Like the fact that that is so blatant, even in this movie. Because I think somebody at the beginning of this asked, like, "How could the fascists possibly misinterpret, honestly or dishonestly, this movie to to suit their purpose?" You know what I mean? Like, how could you possibly watch this movie as a chud and say, "Oh, the fascists were the good guys," or fascism is actually the side of good coming out of this? And it's like. You have the pale man who has the stacks of shoes and the paintings and murals of him eating children. And the stigmata in the by... hands, right? Yeah, like it's like... And the fact that people are still even now resurrecting this theory of like, you're literally living in the times where we are uncovering the history of residential schools, both in the U.S. and Canada, and their ties to Christian and Catholic churches. And then everybody's response to this is like, yeah, but what about Jews? It's like, go fuck yourself. It's like, it drives me so insane, but like... That is the level to which they can misinterpret things and just get it completely wrong because they have no adherence to honesty or facts whatsoever. Sorry, it's where I always end up. I end up there at the end of every episode. I'm sorry, you guys. (laughs) I think just to complicate what you're saying there, though, uh, they're not represented as having any kind of ideology which even looks at scapegoats. They're just talking about cleaning the new Spain. And looking at it historically, uh, Francoism didn't have that much interest in Judaism anywhere more than regular catholic anti-semitism because the inquisition had kicked them out 500 years prior or whatever right exactly that scapegoat didn't really exist in spain uh so they had to sort of glob on to the more direct uh violence and national catholicism that didn't really exist in nazism so it's a completely different beast but del toro really does lampoon the church a lot in this i mean we have the character of the priest saying God has already saved their souls. What happens to their body? Well, it hardly matters to him. Like the Catholic Church is completely and utterly bought into the ideology that's spewing from Vidal. Like there's no ambiguity whatsoever. Well, well, one other thing, this is kind of unrelated to this that I wanted to mention, I think to Del Toro's credit, I think is a good aspect to this movie. So both Ophelia and then also Mercedes, you know, two female characters, I feel like especially Mercedes because, you know, she essentially escapes from the captain and is there to, you know, be part of his eventual murder or, you know, uh, murder at execution. the end. Execution. Execution, yes. That was the word I was looking for. You know, they, they did create, like, a strong character in both of them, and they both make choices that could be deemed, you know, risky and dangerous. Like, Ophelia knew early on that there was something that Mercedes was doing. She knew that she was up to something, but she doesn't turn her in. And, like, that's dangerous for her own well-being and i think there's a line when she's about to be uh tortured is vidal says to her like you know oh do you want me to stay around and she's like no she's a woman like he doesn't have any respect for her and then she had hidden a little knife into you know her apron and you know gets out of there but it's i don't know i think the whole piece of this in in his uh writing i like i want to go back to that execution scene a little bit and i i agree with you it really just does flesh out this character and his critique of this entire ideology um, and I think to even further it, right, because we have Ophelia dying and the the captain dying at the end, right? And Mercedes comes out with his son in her arms and he still hammers on that theme of time. And he says, just tell him the time that his father died, right? And she goes, no, he won't even know your fucking name. He won't know who you are. He won't know anything about you, right? And then they shoot him in the head. And I just thought that was such a good juxtaposition because that son will be brought up to know Ophelia's sacrifice, right? Like he, she, her memory will endure. 
because she sacrificed herself to save him essentially at the end even though she had a choice in her own imagination about giving her brother to the fawn she ultimately chose no i'm not i'm not doing this right and as a result she gets killed in the real world and she gets rewarded in the afterlife right like with this you know becoming the princess and all that kind of stuff but i think more to the point is that in reality people are going to remember her and the fascist died nameless faceless with no legacy in the fucking mud yeah that that scene was great and the, the other thing that i i took from the 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 piece, you know, the, the fawn is basically asking her to make this sacrifice. And it seemed like the sacrifice that Ophelia was making that I feel like all of the, this entire group of communists, the, the liberated front is essentially, they are sacrificing all of themselves for the next generation of people, just like she is doing. And I think it was a great mm -hmm. kind of, you know, ending for the movie. I feel like they couldn't have done it better in the, in the, in the kind of the way that it was built. And so I think you have to... I lost it. I think to sort of pick up your thread there, I think what was really interesting about the ending with the fawn is he basically gives her the choice to be fascist. He tells her that she can purify the world, she can kill this innocent person and have the pure world, the, the, the dream world that Vidal wants, the perfect Spain, the perfect life. And she chooses not to. She chooses to end her own life to protect the innocent, which is as close, I think, as we get to an ideology on the anti-fascists in this movie is that they are for protecting the innocent, whatever that means, as ambiguous as that is. Yeah, no, that's that's better said than I than I was I was getting there. Um, so the that ending scene that Nick talked about is actually different in the script, but only slightly. But I think it's kind of important the differences. So correct me if I'm wrong. In the movie, when he's standing there holding his son and he hands it to Mercedes and he gives his little talk about how he wants to be remembered, tell my son the moment I died, and he takes out his watch. And he chooses not to break it. He puts it back in his pocket. So he literally leaves no physical remnant of his death. But in the original script, he crushes the clock just like his father did. He leaves something behind for the child. So in the revision to the script that was filmed, he literally leaves nothing behind for the child. I think that the I think it works better this way in the same sense that like how he lied about how what his father, you know, breaking the watch which presumably he had and in this case like you're not breaking it's like the line is broken like this 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 yeah. line of horrible fascist you know family is now broken and so you have this unspoiled watch so yeah i think it i think it plays better this yeah, way yeah and that's why i said i think that the kid is going to have the memory of his sister not the father because there is no legacy of him left at all yeah, and it's almost interesting, though, because it sort of, it provides a path for the son that's more direct and less ambiguous, whereas if he has the shattered watch, he doesn't get away from that legacy. He still has to wrestle with it the way the father wrestled with it and the way his father presumably wrestled with it. So it kind of gives a happy ending to the <laughs> you story. Literally still, I was going to say, like, do you think this is like a quote-unquote happy ending? I feel like it is, but also at the same time to... I think what you said a little bit earlier, Levi, that I think is a common critique I have with so many movies that are trying to put in and inject leftist kind of concepts is that there's no uh, alternative. There's no presentation of what the next stage of this will be, you know, communist 
whatever it is. It's always kind of like, this is, it's up to your imagination to see what that will be, especially in this movie about fairy tales. So like the ending is like a happy ending, but a fairy tale because we almost can't imagine what like the next piece of this Spain would be. I mean, it is a happy ending, except it's not. We know the fascists yeah. win. We know they eventually stamp down the gorillas and Franco lives for another 40 years with an iron grip on the country. So it's a bittersweet ending at the very best. I don't even know that it's, you know, the way I described it before as a happy ending, I would say it's a happier ending than was originally written. But this is not a happy ending by any stretch. The character dies. It's ambiguous whether or not she even gets her reward. out there on the ground. It's pretty graphic, too. And that's why I wanted to bring up Del Toro's, at least the politics I can glean from a quick internet search, you know, why, why I wanted to bring it up off the top. Just because, again, it's like, if you have this vague notion of, like, anti-structuralism or whatever, like he kind of puts it, then what what are you talking about? You're talking about, at least in our current context, you're talking about a fairy tale. It's It's a nice ideal, but... Where are we actually going? See, I mean, how quickly could that be kind of turned into an anti-communist message as well? I mean, it's perfect because it comes from someone raised in the West under like a capitalist government. And it's that same critique of just systems or authority or government in general that comes from Westerners who have never known anything that could work for working class people. So they just assume it all means corruption. It all means graft um, because their only interactions with government is for profit is like predatory on their lives and like it hurts them it's just a negative experience overall um i do kind of like the ending though because you you nailed it perfectly levi you said it's bittersweet and it's like all the endings that we encounter as leftists it's like we're going to cheer when henry henry kissinger dies at like 120 even though we will have no right to cheer because like the guy fucking won like he got all his war crimes done with impunity and that's also why it's such a good fuck you to vidal at the end because that's really all you can get for a guy who spent his whole life fighting the fascist cause and then he didn't win i guess he didn't get get to live a long life like kissinger does but just to have that final like fuck you like no your son's not even going to know your name or anything about you and that gets to be his last thought before he goes it's like that is a good ending for that guy but still bittersweet because it would have been better for them to win uh in spain overall or to save ophelia or any of the other things that could have gone better for them but i think it's good in that way I think it would have been panned as too fantastic if the rebels actually won. I mean, it's meant yeah, I to mean, be historical. <laughs> so then it would be like, uh, what, uh, Inquirious Bastards? <laughs> yeah, and like, don't get me wrong. Like, I appreciate that we have a popular piece of pop culture that is so biting and effective at exposing fascism. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, obviously, we have to do this. Like, I would like to see it take another step. That's all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... Given our structure and the way that Hollywood works, this is maybe a little further than this is about the best you're going to get. So I guess we have to take it. <laughs> yeah, I would hope that the reason that all the endings for movies that feature the liberators and communists as the good guy underdogs, the reason that they're all bittersweet is because that is the call to action to the audience because we haven't achieved full communism yet because we haven't done the real thing to get there yet. But in reality, we all know it's because, you know, what can you do as a director under liberalism other than just paint the communists as idealistic and maybe we'll get there eventually, but it seems kind of scary in the meantime, who knows? Like, Or if, yeah, or if they do, you know, succeed, like you have to then point out all the flaws within them that immediately they won. So the very, very final image of the movie, if I remember it right, is the fig tree and it's actually starting to blossom. So I think he's, his final message is one of hope, hope beyond belief hope beyond logic 
And that's what he's trying to argue, is that we should hold the hope that we can get beyond this fascism. And he's trying to make some sort of commentary, I believe, on the world that we're living in today in terms of overconsumption, because food is huge in this and the consumption of food. So while his politics may not be what we agree with, I think the movie, like you said, Evan, is about as left as we're going to get out of a major motion picture studio. And he still needs to eat. I mean, he loves writing these Hobbit movies, I heard, and he's filming another comic book movie, and he's got the Pinocchio thing going. Like When he says jokingly that he's maybe a little too liberal, I think that's because he's probably been told to tone down the messages in his movies tons of times. So even what we have here is probably a compromise on the message that he wanted. And the message that he maybe wanted to do is probably not even what we want either. Yeah, just to that point, because I think some of the language around that final scene in terms of what's coming from the narrator is about traces of her can be found, right? And I want to go back to this idea of like memory and grappling with history, right? So we talked about like the broader context of politics in Spain around the Civil War. And with that, you know, He's saying that you kind of have to seek out these spots that she touched, right? Do you have to grapple with history, grapple with the events of the past in order to find hope? Realistically, to come to terms with what actually happened, do you have to interrogate that and go seeking it? Right. The rose is always going to be surrounded by thorns. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are actually a bunch of tree imagery in this movie. There is, a, you know, the tree that was dying and the whole thing. I feel like the we, I, this is the one thing I want to mention that I was in my notes was like that the the toad or whatever was like the capitalist hoarding all the resources in the tree, and she had to go there and save the tree from the uh, to give the fruits to everyone. Which I think again, like the fig tree at the end, I think it's you know hope springs eternal or something. I think it also just because you bring up the tree. Um, is there anything to the, the tree is dying and the mother's dying as well. And the mother's dying because of, I mean, she's obviously, you know, the, the child inside her is killing her, but like whatever she's facing is exacerbated by the stress just put on her by what's going on around her, right? Like the stress of traveling across the country just to be with the psychopath, the stress of the dinner parties and the, you know, pomp and circumstance and the decorum and the rules and the requirements and everything. You know, like, is that also part of this as well? Because that kind of happens around the same time. And the only thing that was saving her at the end there was the mandrake root, the reference to this sort of old Celtic pre-Catholic religion that she keeps running into throughout the movie. And as soon as it's dead, the priest is rushed in. Yeah, like the scene where he throws the mandrake into the fire is like pretty... She throws it into the fire. Oh, that's right. She does. And you're right. It's funny. I I was thinking about that and it it's actually even worse. It's like, uh, you know, we, we can't, we can't, uh, have this old school remedies. We need the, uh, the church. Carmen, sorry, I was not going to end it. Does Carmen yeah. die in childbirth? Yes. Oh, okay. So I, I haven't watched it in a while. My bad. But I mean, that is, that is telling, like she's presumably married to a fascist to begin with and her husband who was the tailor. Um, if, even if we are to assume that he was like a rebel sympathizer and that's why he got sent away by, uh, Admiral Vidal or Captain Vidal in this uh, prequel that I'm making up in my mind now. But um, yeah, she just goes from one to another and then repeatedly just does things that are against her own interests up to the to her own end, uh, even if she does birth the next rebel in her son, hopefully. So the final words, I think it's worth focusing on. So it's right after Vidal has found the mandrake root, shows it to Carmen, and Carmen has the root, and Vidal furiously leaves the room. So Ophelia, 
The fawn told me you would get better, and you did. Carmen, you have to listen to your father. You have to stop all this. Ophelia hugs her mother with all her might. Ophelia, no, I want to leave this place. Please, let's just go. Carmen, things are not that simple. Carmen pries her off and looks her in the eye. Carmen, as you get older, you'll see that life isn't like your fairy tales. The world is a cruel place. She moves away and near the open chimney. The firelight casts shadows over her sweaty face. Carmen, and you'll learn that, even if it hurts. She throws the root into the fire. Ophelia, no. Carmen, Ophelia, magic does not exist. She grabs the girl by the shoulder, shaking her. Carmen, not for you, me, or anyone else. Then a horrible, inhuman squeal, the dying shriek of the mandrake. Ophelia watches in horror as the humanoid root writhes and squeals in the chimney flames. Carmen grasps and doubles over in pain, clutching her stomach. Ophelia holds her as best as she can. Help, help, help. So that's the last words of her mother to the daughter, is that magic does not exist, not for you, me, or anyone else. So that plays into our argument that she probably believed in the popular front at some point, that her husband maybe was a part of it. And she has completely given up hope and decided that she's going to cling to life. And the best way for her to do that, she believes, is to just become a pawn in this fascist's life. Well, I think the line that she says, too, where she says that, you know, that life isn't like your fairy tales, I think also plays into the, maybe what you were saying earlier, Levi, is that to depict like the fascists as, you know, monsters as in these books isn't like doing justice to how evil they are as people and she's almost saying like this stuff isn't real like the real monsters are actually out there so i think she that even plays again to what you're just saying is that she was probably part of this even adjacent to the popular front you know sympathetic and just she has nothing that she has left in her and the other person that tells her not to believe in magic is mercedes earlier in the movie. That's right. But then she ends up believing in it beyond hope. So there's Mercedes and Carmen are kind of on opposite sides of their journey. Carmen is very quickly losing hope and Mercedes is kind of finding a rebirth in her hope. So the child literally gets taken from Carmen and given to Mercedes. Gen Z and Gen X, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. That's a that's a well, silent generation baby yeah, though. That's, that's true. Baby Biden in there. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, does anyone have any uh, last last impressions of the movie or anything else? And then, uh, if not, you should remind everyone your your podcast and your recent work. Sure, yeah, man. Thanks for thanks for having us. You know, we love doing the collabs with you. Um, check us out at Intervention Pod on Instagram. Um, you can find all our links. We've got a recent episode with Rev Left Radio, which we're really excited about. So check that out. We've got. Um, that's part of the New Deal series that we're doing. We've got a Reading Capital series that Mike has been an integral part of. We've got our Palestine, Zionism, and Empire series, which you can check out, and a lot of stuff in between. So, uh, But thanks so much for having us, Evan. We always love doing it with you. Yeah, that Palestine series is great. Thanks, and man. the one with Love, too. I literally forgot how many series you guys were concurrently working on holy shit you guys. that's that's the joke it's just like whoever can find the time to actually work on something we throw an entry into one of these series which who knows if we'll ever finish but we're you know we're doing a good job of actually keeping them sustained which is something in and of itself well the palestine one's the got it, it has you know there's a lot of entries in there i think it's uh at least uh, i mean six main entries and then we've probably got what levi three or four like article commentary series on, or entries on top of that I think honestly we have about six article entries on it now yeah it'd be a whole podcast just about that honestly 
Well, then uh, also check out the Turn Left's podcast or Turn Left's on Instagram. I'm mostly just doing collabs on other people's podcasts at the moment, but uh, it's fun to do, so I'll keep doing it. And uh, some live episodes here and there, so we'll do those. Awesome. Well, yeah, you can follow. You'll see all those links and such on there, and you can follow this on the left of the projector on all the places that podcasts are available, and we will catch you next time.